0: Listener Production. Gidget Foundation Australia acknowledges the continuing connection to culture, lands, waterways, and communities of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And we pay our respects to traditional owners of country, both past and present, throughout Australia. This podcast contains conversations about
1: suicide, loss, depression, and anxiety that some listeners may find distressing. If you or anyone you know needs help, don't hesitate. Contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or emergency services on
0: 0. Growing up, I always knew and I was always told that I was Aboriginal. I couldn't give birth on country. I gave birth off country. And that was really important to me to have Lily's placenta, you know, kept after I gave birth.
1: For Jamie, bringing life into the world involved more than just giving birth. To strengthen the connection between her newly born and ancestors, Jamie was looking forward to the placenta burial her mob had been practising for thousands
0: of years. This was a part of the birthing plan, the only part of the plan that didn't happen. I reflect and I think just not being heard and, you know, it started with the placenta. At the time, I didn't realise it. I lost control. I just felt disrespected. Aboriginal Australia has different and yet
1: equally important birthing practices that unfortunately are not well understood in the Western world. Acknowledging these practices ensures Indigenous
0: families start parenthood off on the right foot and their heritage is respected. It's just so important for her, like, you know, in her daycare now. You know, she knows, she goes, I'm majory." <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, sis, you're majory." <laughs> Pregnancy and the first year of parenthood is a time
1: of major change in a person's life that without the right support can lead to or prolong perinatal depression and anxiety. For too long, these parents have suffered in silence, but that doesn't have to be where the story ends. Hi, I'm Davina Smith, and in this podcast, we tell the silent truth of PNDA loudly, and we meet some of the one in five mothers and
0: one in 10 fathers who've lived through it. Ready to start talking. Hi, I'm Jamie, and I'm one of the one in five mothers who have experienced perinatal depression and anxiety.
1: In today's episode, we'll be taking a look at the First Nations experience of pregnancy and parenthood with psychologist Chris Barnes from Gidget Foundation Australia joining us a bit later to discuss the importance of cultural practices in making happy, healthy families. Hi, Jamie. Hey, Davina, nice to see you again. So good to see you. Tell
0: us a little bit about yourself, your mob, and, and where you're from. I'm a proud Wiradjuri woman. I was born on Manly Hospital. My family stemmed back from Parks and Forbes region of New South Wales. Growing up, I always knew and I was always told that I was Aboriginal because of where I grew up in Sydney. You know, I flew under the radar. You know, my skin color is white. I grew up in a very white area. And while I was always told, you know, we are black, I never identified when I was a kid. I was too scared to. And all the way up until I got to university. And yeah, that's when I started to really, I guess, come out of my shell and start being proud about my heritage, which is really sad with my daughter. It's just so important for her. Like, you know, in her daycare now, you know, she knows, she goes, I'm (laughs) Majory. And I'm like, yeah, sis, you're (laughs) Madjuri. And yeah, you know, I had that when I was growing up too, but I guess I'm very aware of what my... Um, schooling years were like, and I really just don't want that for Lily. And
1: where does the love story fall Linda all of that?
0: Tom and I have been together for just over 10 years. We met each other in high school. He had a huge crush on me, apparently, for many years and thought that I was way too cool to even talk to. So I was like, okay, that's <laughs> whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we um, started talking after we finished high school. Yeah, the rest is history. We got married Last year. So he put a ring on it four years ago. So we've, um <laughs> yeah, we've, we've just taken things slowly. Absolutely. And, um, yeah. <laughs>
1: Were children always part of the picture for you?
0: Yes. Finally, because I always said to Tom, so I come from a family, a pretty big family. There's four of us. And I would always say to him that I want more than two kids and He would just, no, we just want one. I just want one. And I was like, well, you're with the wrong girl if you just want one baby. (laughs) And come to 2023, you know, I'm I'm a proud mum now of uh, one daughter and, yeah, there's definitely no more children. Really? (laughs) Yes, (laughs) Tom got his way. He got his way. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about Lily, what sort of girl she is. So Lily is, she's two and a half now and she is full of energy Sassy, beautiful, loving. She's everything we always wanted. We really wanted a girl. Yeah, we heard the name Lily at the beach one afternoon and, yeah, we were like, that's, that's going to be our kid's name one day. <laughs> if we have a girl, that's what we're going to call our girl.
1: Does she take after you or Tom?
0: Um, probably me, I reckon, <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> so, so my parents say anyway. <laughs> take us back
1: to the joy of, of finding out that you are pregnant and that journey, what, what it was like at the time.
0: So we were really lucky. We were only trying for a baby for about two or three months. Yeah, I had a pretty easy pregnancy. I've got some health issues myself, so I've got some um, benign tumours on my liver and I actually found out about those two years before I fell pregnant and I was told by the doctor to not try for a baby until um, we sort of have these tumours under control and we know what they are and that it's going to be safe for you to have a baby. So, yeah, the time was right. About two or three months after trying, we fell pregnant and the pregnancy was pretty easy. Then I think COVID was starting to hit come third trimester. So you had, I guess,
1: maybe the anxiety of a little bit of COVID starting to bubble away and mm. you had your own health issues that you were challenged with. What were your expectations then going into to labour and birth?
0: Yeah, so it was scary because, you know, Everything that I had learnt about birth and read about on the internet and, you know, textbooks was, you've got this big birthing team, you know, your your mum and your dad are out waiting in the labour ward, you know, waiting for bub to come. Then all these restrictions came in. So at one stage throughout the pregnancy, Tom wasn't actually able to come to my antenatal visit with the OB. That was, you know, that was okay at the time because we thought, you know, pretty far in the pregnancy now we're getting towards the end we know everything's all good but it was still you know first your baby first baby yeah you want first them to baby. Be them. Yep. the experience itself how did it play out so I went into labor on Sunday evening sort of just very mild contractions and went to bed that night I was okay you know I was okay to go to bed and sort of just sleep on it. That's what the midwives said anyway when I called the birthing suite. <laughs> did you sleep? <laughs> uh, I did actually. Oh, well done. <laughs> <laughs> and then I woke up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. I think it was about 12 or 1 o'clock in the morning. Went to the bathroom and my waters had broken a little bit. So I thought, oh my God, this is it. Because a bit of backstory prior to that, about two weeks before I actually went into labour, I kept having premature contractions. I think I went into the birthing suite like three or four times just thinking, oh, my God, is this baby going to come? <laughs> like, come on. Today? Is it yeah, today? Yeah. Is it today? <laughs> <laughs> the 9th of August it was when I went into labour, quickly woke Tom up and I was like, it's it. The midwife said we can come in. Let's go. Tom had actually been rehearsing the drive from our house <laughs> to the hospital <laughs> because... <laughs> a good first time dad <laughs> i know but if anyone knows the pacific highway going from Lane cove to st leonards it's a bit rocky <laughs> so tom was like very you know prepared on what lanes to drive in <laughs> uh, he drove us to the hospital the car ride was it was fine i was um, managing the contractions well in the car we arrived at the birthing suite it was midnight at this stage or after midnight so now the 10th of august we went into this little like assessment room in the birthing suite. So we didn't actually go into a proper birthing suite just yet. We were put in this assessment room. We had spoken to our obstetrician about placenta burial. That was really important because my nan has passed away. I couldn't get back to, I couldn't give birth on country. I gave birth off country. And that was really important to me to have Lily's placenta, you know, kept after I gave birth. What's the tradition for
1: those who aren't aware of it and particularly the significance of your grandmother being passed away?
0: I guess the significance of placenta burial in my culture is to connect our baby's spirit to their country and to their ancestors. Being on country is where my ancestors come from and in my circumstances we're Wiradjuri woman and my family comes from Forbes and Parks region so that would be on country for me. I had told our obstetrician that this is what I wanted and, you know, it was just left at that. He had said to also tell the hospital staff as well, which we did when we went in. But, yeah, when I went into hospital, it was just, this baby's coming out. (laughs) I need to get this baby out. (laughs) Did it go to plan? No, it did not. And it's interesting you say that because I had this grand birthing plan and about two weeks before I was due, I decided to scrap it. I just chucked it in the bin. My last obstetrician appointment, I said, don't worry about the birthing plan. (laughs) I don't want a birthing plan. My birthing plan is that I trust you. And I'm really glad I chucked it out because everything I said I didn't want on that plan is what happened pretty much. (laughs) So how was Lily born? So I was labouring for about six hours and she became distressed her heart rate was going up and down. The rest of my waters had to be manually broken. There were more and more people coming into the birthing suite and I was, you know, trying to just relax and get into the moment of just, I'm about to give birth. But I just, you know, I guess working in a hospital, I sort of have this, you know, this cue of like, oh, why are all these extra staff in here? That's it's not... a sixth sense. You knew what was yeah. going on, that there was a bit more to the yeah. plan all of a sudden. Exactly. And then a doctor had come in and said, oh, look, she's in distress. So we're going to give it about 15 minutes more. And yeah, that's sort of when we started talking about a cesarean. It happened so quickly. So, you know, my ob and I, we actually didn't even discuss a cesarean birth at all. We were just, yeah, we'd only discussed a vaginal birth. Literally in a blink of an eye, I had one midwife on each leg putting the stockings on. I had someone cannulating me suddenly just, you know, really quickly. And Within the next, I guess, five, ten minutes, I'm sitting in the operating table. Wow. And the poor anaesthetist, you know, I was contracting because I hadn't had any drugs at this stage as well. And I'm contracting on the table. (laughs) And he's trying to put a spinal in and I'm just terrified because I know how big that needle is and I'm like, you get that in the wrong spot. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh,
1: my goodness.
0: So I had that anxiety, like, oh, my God, this is huge needle. Jamie, just keep still. But the contractions, oh, my God, that's so painful.
1: (laughs) That's anxiety for anyone, but particularly with your healthcare background as well. The the pressure was there. You you know Mm. what was going on. How was Tom in all of this?
0: He was there with his camera. (laughs) <laughs> and he's the photographer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, he was all good. <laughs> he was like, you've got this, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> he was cool
1: and kinda collected as long as he yep. was behind the lens. Yes, yep. <laughs> and the Caesar took
0: place. Yeah, That all went to plan? Yep, so all was good with the Caesar. The obstetrician came in, and that was actually really nice because, you know, I had all these staff around me. I had no idea who anybody was. All The only person I'd seen throughout the whole pregnancy was my ob. He knew who I was, he knew what the plan was about the placenta. He got Lily out and they were searching, searching, trying to find a cause for distress. And he said, Jamie, I don't know what was going on, but everything's okay. Oh. And it's funny because literally. I look at yeah, I look at Lily now and she is just a fiery little two and a half year old and we think she's just like, Don't wake me up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy sleeping right now.
1: <laughs> Do it my way or the highway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that moment. When you got to hold her for the first time, what was that like?
0: Yeah, it was oh, It was so special. It felt like a washing machine or something on my lower half because like, they were stitching me up and making sure everything was okay down there. And you've got this beautiful baby just sitting on my chest and, yeah, she was just beautiful. And, yeah, it was just such a special moment. To go from that chaos
1: of mm. not knowing what was going on and the plans going out the window to that calmness of having her there must have been reassuring. Yeah, it was. At what point did you become aware that your plan for the placenta wasn't going to plan?
0: So after I had been stitched up and everything was all good to leave the operating theatre, I went into the recovery area. You know, I had Lily on me, Tom was with me. That's when I just started the breastfeeding, like to get Lily on the breast. Then I asked where the placenta was, you know, has the placenta been taken care of? And the midwife was just completely confused and had no idea what I was talking about. She goes, oh, I don't know. And it was such an awkward time as well because it was change of shifts. And she'd come back about 15 minutes later and said that, oh, it's it's been thrown in the bin. And she had the bin with her. And it was in a clinical waste bin. And she said, did you want it? And I was just... Straight away, I said, in my head, you know, politely, I said, no, thank you. And I just thought, you know, this is, I know what goes in those bins. There could be some gauze in there. There could be other stuff. I have no idea. To me, it was just instantly dirty and I didn't want that. So I just put it in the back of my head and I just said, no, thank you. I only had Tom with me. There was no family or anyone around to advocate or anything. And, you know, Tom was in just as much shock as I was with the whole birthing process. So I can't really... the responsibility on him to ask questions it's kind of up to the hospital to this was a part of the birthing plan the only part of the plan that didn't happen so yeah in the days and weeks that followed after such a traumatic birth you had some challenges with breastfeeding as well can you talk about them right after i'd given birth when i went to the maternity ward i guess that's probably where the i started to get depressed looking back and we were put in an isolation room and Tom wasn't allowed to stay the first night, which was um, actually really heartbreaking because all the parents, are, you're, all, you're allowed to have a birthing partner with you on the ward and the only reason he couldn't stay was because I was in an isolation room and I was only in an isolation room because I didn't have enough beds. I didn't have any infectious diseases or anything. So that's when the, the big feelings started happening with me. The hospital stay was not a very pleasant stay at all. I remember just getting into our place, into our house, and we are like, what do we do now? You know, Lily was in. We put Lily down on the couch. Yeah, we were just like, what do we do now? Do we have lunch? Like, what do we normally do? <laughs> you know, the hospital was so chaotic, and the nurses, the midwives coming in and trying to help with expressing and stuff like that and getting the colostrum. It was just a really eerie, lonely first visit back home it was such a weird weird feeling being back home we just sort of felt out of place in our own home I reflect and I think just not being heard and you know it started with the placenta at the time I didn't realize it I lost control so I didn't have any control with my placenta and then I didn't have any control with having my husband well my partner there at the time you know he couldn't even stay for the very first night again I've lost control I just felt disrespected It was just one thing after another. You know, Lily was quite difficult at the beginning. She cried a lot and I cried a lot. There were lots of tears from everybody. (laughs) But that started in the hospital and it was really hard breastfeeding, getting the colostrum out, and I felt like just these constant failures. And, you know, then going into an emergency seizure, like, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen next?
1: So then to go from the hospital environment where there are plenty of people who should be listening Mm. but weren't, to then to go home where there's no one there, it's just you and this baby, it must have felt so isolating.
0: Yeah, and that's right. Like, you know, you're in a hospital, right? And I look back and it's just, it's like a conveyor belt. You know, you're a conveyor belt. Next mum, come on, let's get them out. Given birth, go to recovery, and then you go to the labour ward and then you get discharged home. And I felt like everything was just so rushed in the hospital. There could have been so many times in the hospital where questions could have been asked, I suppose, or, you know, I was crying so much just in the hospital. You know, I didn't actually have anyone ask me, what's going on? Are you okay? It was just assumed that I guess the baby blues had started straight away.
1: And it clearly wasn't the baby blues.
0: No, not at all. So at what
1: point did it go from depression to this overwhelming
0: sense of negative thoughts that started to spiral? That happened fairly quickly. The best way i describe it is if the baby blues just never left. I was crying all day, every day. And I sort of felt, you know, we had all the antenatal checks. We had the midwife that came over to our house. And I look back and I, like, cleaned up my house before that midwife had come in. <laughs> and Don't we all. <laughs> <laughs> as a nurse as well, for the district where I gave birth, I felt like I had this expectation to live up to, like this standard to live up to. And if my house wasn't clean or if I looked like I didn't have my stuff together, that I'm going to be frowned upon as a nurse and a mother as a new mum. Like, you're a nurse, surely you know how to parent. (laughs) I put on a really good show of keeping it together and I presented very well, I guess. And I was struggling so badly internally. I think Tom had definitely realised that something wasn't right but he was also so lost himself as well and I actually think he had some anxiety and depression when when I gave birth in that you know. The trauma uh, of it all. Yeah yeah and seeing me like you know so different and this emotional person right after giving birth like he knew that emotions were coming but you know I was a completely different person I was so angry all the time like, furious angry, you know, it wasn't just yelling at him for, I don't know, something really trivial. It was just this intense, like, rage and anger that I had. And I just felt out of control with my emotions. It was really scary. Yeah, I just didn't know who I was, I guess, at the time. And then I had this beautiful baby who didn't stop screaming and did not want to sleep. And it was just chaos.
1: So at what point did you sit there and go, "Okay, this isn't normal, I should be getting some joy? No matter how hard the circumstances are at the moment,
0: what was the trigger to get help? So we had actually moved house shortly after I'd given birth. It was this beautiful house that was right on the back of a national park and, yeah, it was just so peaceful and we had sort of come from a tiny, tiny apartment when I'd first given birth, so it was really nice to just have some space. Lily lived in the carrier. That's the only way she would sleep, nice and close to my chest. The carrier was like the best baby item we ever bought. So I would go bushwalking, you know, to try and get her to sleep. Basically, I'd be walking like, I would clock up thousands of kilometres a day just trying to get this kid to sleep. And my back was hurting, like my whole body was in so much pain. I was walking on the bush tracks and these intrusive thoughts would start. So I'd be thinking of, you know, browned, and black belly snakes just laying there in the sun and what if I, you know, because I've got the carrier on, what if I don't see a snake and then it bites me or I run and then it bites me and then I fall over and I i can't move because a snake has bitten me and what happens if no one found me and Lily's, like, screaming on my chest and I would, I would just be thinking about these things walking along and I could actually see it happening in my head. It was like I could visualise exactly what was going to happen and it was just really distressing and it was happening multiple times a day and it got to a stage where I was a bit too scared to leave the house and I was a bit too scared to go bushwalking. Then I became suicidal, so thankfully that only happened once, but that was my call that, okay, this needs to stop. There's something not right here and I need to get help. Tom had started working again and he was away for work I, you know, was just a a day at home with my little girl Lily and she didn't want to sleep. I was rocking her to sleep and I was probably rocking her a bit too much. I didn't shake her, but I was like aggressively rocking her to sleep and I knew that I was doing the wrong thing at the time. Thankfully, I only lasted 10 seconds and she just didn't want to sleep. And I look back now and I'm like, just put her down. Put her in front of the TV. You know, you didn't have to get her to sleep. I was just so hellbent on like this kid needs to sleep. Like everybody needs to sleep. Babies need more sleep. Sleep was this huge thing for me. In that moment, I put her in the cot safely. I closed the door. She was okay. I left the room and I called Tom and I sort of told him what happened. He was like, right, I'm coming home now. So he made his way home. I had the sonder app. I can't remember exactly how it works, but I I think it was like a text messaging thing on this app and it was just sort of do you need some help now? Do you want to talk to someone? And I said yes. The great thing about that app is they can actually track where you are. So straight away they linked me with someone who called me. I ended up talking to this beautiful midwife at a I don't I have no idea where this person was. <laughs> wow. But it was like this guardian angel. This person just called me and said, "Do you think she needs to drop a nap?" And I was like, "Oh." <laughs> well, I don't know. Do you reckon she needs to drop a nap? I don't, I've got no idea. I just like babies need to sleep. And she, yeah, just gave me some really practical advice on not what I was going through emotionally and what I had done, but hey, this is what's happening. She's crying. She's not sleeping. She gave me some really practical advice and I was like, okay, I'm going to try that tomorrow. And straight away, I felt so much better.
1: It was that somebody listened to you.
0: Yeah, I think that was it. That didn't listen to totally. the
1: hospital, but they listened then and heard what was going on in your life. And it was a yep. circuit breaker.
0: Yes, that's right. And, yeah, Tom had come home and, you know, while I was waiting for him to come home, I'm, like, Googling for help, you know, bawling my eyes out on the kitchen floor, you know, relieved that, okay, I've got a plan for tomorrow with how to get her her next nap sorted. But in the meantime, you know, I've had these thoughts of, like, I don't want to be here anymore while I'm rocking my baby way too fast, trying to get her to sleep, like that's not okay. And I was feeling really guilty about that. And, you know, meantime, Lily's still crying in the bedroom. Mm. (laughs) You know, I just couldn't bring myself to go in there. I just said, I'm going to wait till Tom gets home and then we'll face it together. So yeah, I found Gidget Foundation um, just frantically Googling on the kitchen floor, bawling my eyes out, thinking I need help that's not going to cost a bomb or for me to have to wait forever in the public system. And
1: Lily was still, I guess, an unsettled baby at, at, at some point there. So what changed for you? It was very much the, having that mental health care plan in place?
0: Yes, having the mental health care plan in, in place, speaking to Julie, the psychologist, and probably... Just knowing that what I was going through was, it's not okay, but it's okay. You're not the only one to go through this, unfortunately. I I wish no one had to go through this, but I just felt less alone and that, okay, look, there's other people who are going through this with me. I don't feel so alone. And I had joined the Gidget virtual village as well, which I found really helpful. While, you know, you're going through the The motion of your day with a baby. It was nice to just sit on Facebook when you're eating or, you know, when Bub's asleep to just look at what other people are writing and you just, you know, can just have this connection, I suppose, that, oh, yeah, I'm going through that too. And I guess you couldn't connect to
1: your culture in that time as well. What ways were you able then to reach out?
0: For me personally, my plan was to bury Lily's placenta because we didn't get to keep the placenta, the plan was to then bury her umbilical cord. And we've just recently done that. While we weren't able to bury that umbilical cord on country, for me, it's a connection with my nan and under an olive tree. So that's in a big pot plant at our house at the moment. And when we buy a house one day, it's going to be planted into Mother Earth. And on country, off country, to me, It's about being connected to my ancestors, you know, Lily being connected to her ancestors and in my case that's my nan, so that will always be with us. Tell us about your connection
1: with the kookaburra.
0: The kookaburra, so that is a family totem. So when we moved out of our apartment that we had been in when I'd first given birth, because it backed right onto the national park, there was kookaburras everywhere, just everywhere. You know, there was a family and kookaburras travel in families, They were on our deck, they were on the fence and whenever we would come home, because we were at the end of a cul-de-sac, they would always be sitting on the power lines directly above our house, never above anybody else's house. It was always above ours. One day, I was working from home and I'd opened like the back deck, the door, big sliding door, and I could just hear this like really weird noise um, for like a good 15 minutes and at first I thought something had fallen over, a bit of paper or something or a book falling over. It was just kind of like a scratching, like a wiping scratching sound. Then it just got, you know, louder and louder and I thought, "What is going on?" So I went around the house, checked all the rooms and went into Lily's room and, you know, the the deck is like, you know, there's the deck and then you've got to go like up a set of stairs and then turn right down a hallway and then there's Lily's bedroom. So I went into Lily's bedroom and there's this kookaburra sitting on the floor. In her room? Yeah, in her room. And I was like, oh my God, how on earth did it get in here? <laughs> like that's a long way. Like it can't it's just... amazed. Yeah, yeah. Like you can't just like automatically just jump in the house. And the kookaburra was so calm as well. Like he or she was just sitting there. Just hanging out. Just hanging out in Lily's room. And I just closed the door and I, I went and got Tom and I was like, Tom, there's... And he was on a work call and I'm like, Get off the phone. <laughs> I was like, there's a kookaburra in the house. <laughs> and he was like, what? Like, Jay, what are you talking about? I was like, Tom, you need to come. There's a kookaburra in the house. So he comes out and he's like, what do you mean? <laughs> and I was like, go and have a look. <laughs> and so he, you know, opens up the door and he's like, oh my God, how on earth did it get in the house? And I was like, I had the door open, like, had the door open so many times before. Nothing has come in, like, no wildlife has come into the house before
1: let alone up a hallway (laughs) and around the corner to Lily's room. (laughs) Yeah,
0: totally. So Tom's like, okay, what are we going to do? And I was like, okay, I think we need to get a blanket. And also we should probably put something on our eyes because that beak looked massive. Like, you know, (laughs) when you're up close to a kookaburra, it's huge. Like the beak is ginormous and it's really sharp.
1: Yeah, but what were you going to put on your eyes?
0: Well, I'm a nurse, so I've got plenty of safety goggles around the house. (laughs) (laughs) And because of COVID, they were always in my bag. (laughs) So, um at this stage I was just cracking up laughing and I just couldn't help but laughing because I was like, I don't have to do this, Tom has to do it. <laughs> Where was Lily at all? This? She was a dancing. <laughs> oh Tom's like freaking out and he's like, Oh my god, it's like this is a big bird. It's not just like, you know, a little bird. So he goes in and sort of just gently throws the picnic blanket over the kookaburra and before that happened it just started letting out this huge cackling laugh. <laughs> laughing at the, the two yeah. of you in your yeah, goggles. Yeah. <laughs> And it was so loud. You know, we think it's loud just being outside, right? When it's in a room, it is like deafening loud. (laughs) And that made Tom like even more nervous. And I'm just laughing my head off at him (laughs) thinking, get this damn wire, I've got to get this thing out of the house. So, yeah, he throws the blanket, the picnic rug over this kookaburra, picks the kookaburra up and it's, like, starting to flap its wings and it's, like, starts laughing and it's so loud in the whole house and Tom's, like, running outside in his safety goggles. (laughs) And, um, yeah, gently puts him or her down onto the ground on the deck and he just laughs and just flies off and that was it. And then we were both like, what just happened? What the hell? And then I went into her room to to see, great, like what mess has been left in there. Nothing. Wow. And Lily's room out of all rooms. I just think that's so weird because ever since we moved into this house, that's when our calm came. You know, I was still going through all these really horrible, intrusive thoughts every day and feeling really emotional every day, but it was just this calm of where we were and the kookaburras around us and I just knew that we were safe. And that where we were in this moment in our lives, like, everything will be okay. It's almost like that was supposed to happen and it was almost like, you know, my nan or someone sending a message saying, Jay, like, you know, I know you're going through a really tough time but everything will be okay. And I told my boss about what had happened in a meeting we had the week after and he was just, you know, he's older and he's an Aboriginal man and he was gobsmacked. He said, Jay, that is... That's really special and, you know, kookaburras don't come up to people and for that kookaburra to go into Lily's bedroom, like, that's pretty incredible.
1: Knowing your experience, simple awareness of different cultural practices on a maternity ward, if we raised awareness amongst maternity staff, that's just one simple thing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Because it wasn't, people didn't deliberately disregard what you wanted. but yes. There was a carelessness there. Yes.
0: Yeah, exactly right. And I think as well, just for some Aboriginal people, going to a hospital is you only go there when you're really sick. So giving birth is, you know, families will scratch their heads, you know, like, why do you need to go to a hospital? There's other ways to, to give birth. And it's a very scary time for some people. With hospital staff as well, because there's so many staff I think every person who comes into the hospital should know that there's an Aboriginal liaison officer available for patients and their family members. That's a good start. If, if there's one thing a non-Indigenous person is not sure about, at least just know what Aboriginal services are available in your hospital because then all you have to say is, hey, let's link you in with the ALO and then you can have a yarn with them, find out some more about what's going on and then we can work together. Something so simple, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, just so simple.
1: Yeah. I guess you're such a proud First Nations woman. Lily will no doubt follow in your footsteps. Even when the time comes for her to have children in, in 30 years' time, <laughs> what would you hope would change?
0: I would hope that from an early age that she's proud to be Aboriginal, really proud of her culture and her identity, and that if she decides to have a baby herself one day, that the healthcare system respects her and her needs and her wishes. And I think it will happen. She's got a pretty staunch mum behind her.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And you just speaking out and sharing your story helps raise that awareness too, Jamie. So thank you so much. Thanks, Davina. We heard from Jamie about how hard it was for herself and her family not to be able to participate in placenta burial and the domino effect this had on her mental health. To discuss this further, we have psychologist Chris Barnes from Gidget Foundation Australia here with us. You speak to us as, as a non Indigenous psychologist, but talk to us what is culturally appropriate help for postnatal depression and anxiety. And how does it differ from mainstream
2: treatments? Well, research and practice does show us that support for, for PNDA incorporates, it's quite a holistic approach, but we know that we need to include certain evidence-based techniques that have actually been shown to work. However, saying that, when we are working with more diverse cultures, we really need to seek the best possible outcomes. So those mainstream treatments need to be adapted and we nearly ne- really need to make sure that we keep in mind what's important to each client that we see. And look, even within some cultures, beliefs and practices may also be different. So we need to ask lots of questions, I think, and it's really important to work really collaboratively and make a treatment plan together so we can incorporate what we know works as mental health professionals, but also what our clients feel you know is really important to them. We have to be creative as well and not just do the talking therapies. Other people might like to do painting or art or more creative stuff or play therapy or sand therapy as well. So it really is working out what works for each person to help them in their recovery. Jamie's story is so important because it tells through
1: her experience of what her plan was in place and how that wasn't respected not deliberately, but it wasn't
2: valued Mm. and it could have quite easily. Absolutely. And you think that Jamie had the one birth plan. She actually put aside her probably more detailed birth plan and this was the one thing that was going to be really special and connect her to her ancestors and her nan. It's just so sad, isn't it? And I think that the connection to community for First Nations people is so important and that that just didn't happen. And I'm sure that, and, and as Jamie would probably agree with me, had something to do with the development of the depression so early as well and that and that loss and the traumatic birth experience for her.
1: What are some of the common challenges and, and barriers that people from different cultural backgrounds may face when they're seeking help for PNDA?
2: Well, I think historically there's been a lack of funding and research and education really into what might support people from different cultures. We really need to focus on how the fear of discrimination, racism, stigma, judgment, and even child removal for First Nations people has really contributed to how they feel about being involved in the health system. First Nations women are also underscreened in the perinatal period and research and and experience shows that they actually discharge themselves early from hospital, which may then impact on giving them extra support that, that they may have found helpful. And that's because they just don't feel safe. But other barriers include there's a real sort of lack of understanding and culturally responsive care options available for people from different cultures as well. There can be language barriers, isolation, you know, even just financial barriers and transport, even things like that to enable people to access services. So we need to really, you know, amp up our education really about how we can adapt. And I also think in general we have to be really careful that we don't re-traumatise people who have had quite a bit of trauma in their lives for those people who have. So we need to make sure that they're culturally responsive environments and we need to care for them in a way that supports healing and recognise their resilience and strengths as well. I guess there's an easy fix to that, to
1: making people feel comfortable and that's by, by simply asking doctors, nurses, health practitioners, asking do you identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander?
2: That's a great question, isn't it? And such a wonderful way to open up supports for them and to lead into the ALOs that are in hospitals and just get the right support that they need.
1: What are some culturally appropriate strategies then for managing and also for treating PNDA?
2: We know we need to sort of bring different forms of knowledge together. So, again, what we know works in the mental health sphere, we need to combine that with knowledge of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures, beliefs, practices it's all about person and community-centred care. I think, you know, there are some other things you can do too is to actually work on country if you can and if you're in that, in that area is to go for a walk with clients and be in nature and walk and talk, if you like, rather than being in a stark sort of white office, which can be, you know, a bit unsettling for some people. And giving them a voice and really asking who they are, where they've come from, involving partners and support people is also really important as well. So Jamie's given me this really lovely definition of Aboriginal health. And it means not just the physical well-being of an individual, but refers to the social, emotional and cultural well-being of the whole community, in which each individual is able to achieve their full potential as a human being, thereby bringing about total well-being of their community. It's a whole of life view. And it includes a cyclical concept of life, death, life.
1: Chris, I guess Jamie's story is so important for us all. It's important for First Nations women. It's important for healthcare professionals. But it's important for us all to understand and respect that there are culturally
2: significant traditions. Jamie's story brings to light so many important things that were, were missing for her during her birth and, and postnatal experience. So I think the more that we can link in with what is important to people and the more we can help First Nations women at this very vulnerable time supporting them, you know, as much as we can and giving them lots of time to tell us about what's happened, what they need, making sure we have other referral options for them if we are not the right person. Gidget
1: Foundation is is a wonderful starting point for, for families who are going through postnatal anxiety and depression but particularly for First Nations families there are services out there that can provide cultural support as well.
2: There are I mean I think in particular there's 13YARN which is 139276. There's also Aboriginal Maternal Infant Health Service and they can help with various things and then there's SMS for dads too for dads and partners. Chris thank you. Thank you.
1: This podcast is a listener production made in partnership with Gidget Foundation Australia. Producer is Kelsey Menzies, executive producer is Todd Stevens, with audio production from Kelly Falston. Listener.